0: The language that's used in self-compassion, or even just the sentiment underneath self-compassion, is stereotypically feminine energy. And I think that in our culture, that is not valued. And I think that I internalize some of that. But, you know, there's a great expression that you think you are thinking your thoughts. But in fact, you're thinking the culture's thoughts. And we take these thoughts on from our family or the culture. And then when we discover them, we can go into these useless spirals of shame or self-laceration. But I think it can be as simple as just seeing that this is happening and letting it go.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Arianna Huffington, and this is What I've Learned. Today, I'm talking to Dan Harris on the power of self-compassion and what he calls embracing the cheese. Not long ago, while exploring my inner Mari Kondo and cleaning out my garage, I came across dozens of old journals I'd kept from my 20s on. What struck me was how self-critical I was. As I paged through my notebooks, I wanted to shout out to my younger self across the years to stop being so hard on myself and give myself a break. I call this voice the obnoxious roommate living in my head. It's that voice that feeds on putting us down and fueling our insecurities. Over the years, I may not have been able to evict my obnoxious roommate, but I've managed to quiet her down a bit. Self-compassion has not always come easy to my guest today. In 2004, Dan Harris had a panic attack while hosting Good Morning America. As coincidence would have it, around the same time that Dan began seeking professional help to get to the root cause of what he calls his on-air freakout, Dan's mentor, Peter Jennings, assigned him to cover faith and spirituality. That led to the realization that his problem was the relentless, ruminating voice in his head. And that led to meditation and to his book, 10% Happier, which became a number one bestseller. Today, he's the co-anchor of the weekend edition of Good Morning America and the host of one of my favorite podcasts, 10% Happier with Dan Harris. Here he is to share how he learned to deal with his own obnoxious roommate.
0: The number one lesson for me over the past year has been incorporating the idea of self-compassion into my life. I should say at the outset here that there are, I know, a lot of people who love the phrase self-compassion and they love the warm, so-called heart-centered language that's used in this practice. But for me, all of that was very hard to take seriously. The big block was that it just struck me as unforgivably saccharine. My reaction was, Oh, so you want me to like hug myself or rub my own chest and say nice things to myself? That, that just sounds, or at least sounded very strange and maybe even goofy to me or forced. So the big breakthrough for me in the last six months has been to get myself to do something I call embracing the cheese and actually incorporating self compassion into my meditation practice and into my life. Part of what finally got me over the hump was a sort of creative desperation. I am literally right now in the middle of writing a book about love and kindness and self-compassion, and writing a book is torture, at least for me. I find that I can very quickly get into chest-tightening stress and thought loops like this book you're writing, and nobody's going to like it as much as your first book, and blah, blah, blah. And I, I don't hug myself these days. I haven't, I haven't taken it that far. But I will now put my hand on my chest and say, you're good, dude. Your progress is fine. You're good. And I, it's embarrassing even now to talk about this. And yet it works. And there's a lot of science that really backs it up. It's like what you hear on the airplane. This is one of the oldest cliches in the book, but it, it happens to be pretty on point. The instruction is to put your own oxygen mask on first. You really can't help anybody else if you're not breathing. So if you're serious about being of service, you have to be serious about taking care of yourself. What self-compassion leads to is not an unending efflorescence of goo. It, It doesn't work like that. But it does give you access to a virtuous cycle. It improves your inner weather. And as a consequence, your behavior improves. And as a consequence of that, your relationships improve. And given the fact that relationships are probably the number one contributor to our mental health, when your inner weather gets warmer, your relationships get better and upwards you go. So you can really pick your spiral here, go up or go down. And all of this goes to the core thesis I've been flogging for nearly a decade, which is that all of these states of mind, self-compassion, calm, connection, compassion for other people, they're not factory settings that are unalterable. They're actually skills you can get better. And that's an incredibly valuable lesson. That's really good news. Finally, one thing I've also learned is that in our efforts to get better at self-compassion, ironically, we need a lot of self-compassion because we will inevitably mess out quite a bit.
1: We're going to hear more from Dan when we are back right after this short break. This year of so much uncertainty and anxiety has been a hard one for sleep, especially with so many of our routines disrupted. But that's exactly why we need to prioritize our sleep now more than ever, because getting enough sleep is what allows us to be more effective at managing stressful, anxious, and disruptive times. That's why we've partnered with Audible, the sponsor of this podcast, to create the Audible Sleep Collection. It's a series of bedtime stories, meditations, and other sound experiences from Nick Jonas, Sean Diddy Combs, Gabby Bernstein, Sarah Oster, and many more, to help you fall asleep, Stay asleep and wake up fully recharged and ready to take on whatever challenges the day brings you. Remember, a great day starts the night before. And stay tuned for a preview of one of my favorite audible sleep experiences at the end of the podcast. Dan, that was amazing. And I'm never going to forget the phrase, embrace the cheese. Have you considered putting it on t-shirts and caps? I bet you could sell a lot of merch. <laughs>
0: That's right. That's right.
1: And as somebody yeah. who has suffered a lot from lacking self-compassion, in fact, I call that voice in my head, the obnoxious roommate living in my head. I loved hearing you talk about self-compassion. So was there a moment during the past year where you realized how important self-compassion is?
0: You know, I am writing a book about all of this right now. And I've been working on this book for coming up on three years. And I was writing a chapter about self-compassion. And I realized all this work I had done, all these interviews I had done, I I was unwilling on some level to put it into practice. And I finally just kind of surrendered and started doing it. And it was simple as that. It was just going through all of my notes, listening to interviews I had recorded and realizing, dummy, I guess that's not very (laughs) self-compassionate, but I I meant it in a, a, hey, buddy, you know, hey, my son calls me dummy sometimes, but in a loving way, he'll say, good morning, dummy. And so I was like, dummy, come on, you can do this thing. You can can embrace the cheese and kind of get over yourself and do this. (laughs) And that was like a few months ago.
1: And you kind of explain why it took you so long, because there is a part of you, I suppose the intellectual part that... Considers this whole talk around self compassion, as you put it, efflorescent goo. So, how did you switch from recognizing that, in fact, it's very science based? It may sound like efflorescent goo, but it's not.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting what's coming to mind here is I, I had a very interesting conversation with some colleagues recently uh, uh, inside the 10% Happier Company. And these are folks who are pretty deep into the practice of meditation and they were diplomatically telling me that they didn't really like it when I called self-compassion cheesy and in fact some of our users didn't like it either and I recognize there are a lot of people who really love this sort of what this language that's sometimes referred to as heart-centered and that some of for me what was holding me back was, I mean, it was multi-leveled. Part of it is I don't like jargon, and I've always had a hard time with jargon, whether it's in meditative circles or corporations or the news. But another part is, I think, some kind of implicit sexism. You know, the the language that's used in self-compassion or even just the sentiment underneath self-compassion is stereotypically feminine energy. And I think that in our culture, that is not valued, and I think that I internalized some of that. And that, even just seeing that, requires some self compassion because it's very easy to get into a story of, oh well, I'm an irredeemable sexist, and, and a whole, you know make it all about me. But you know, there's a great expression that comes, I believe, from this great Indian thinker, Krishnamurti, that you think you are thinking your thoughts. Your thoughts feel very personal to you, but in fact, you're thinking the culture's thoughts. And we are swimming in this water, often not even knowing we're fish and that there's water, and we take these thoughts on from our family or the culture, and then when we discover them, we can go into these useless spirals of shame or self-laceration. But I think it can be as simple as just seeing that this is happening and letting it go.
1: Right, and even kind of recognizing that when each one of us changes, we help the culture change. So we make a difference for everyone else and also help our children change. Uh, you know, I, I love hearing about Alexander, uh, your son, in your podcast and your social media. I first was introduced to him when you recorded our Meditative Story podcast about your father-son trip. So do you also feel that uh, just being more self-compassionate teaches Alexander how to be more self-compassionate without necessarily you talking to him about it?
0: I do, or at least I hope it does. I think modeling, having a sense of humor about your own neuroses, (laughs) about your own ugliness, can give kids permission to have a healthier relationship with the various aspects of their own personality. That being said, I do think sometimes about a comment that my dad made to me, I think a lot about my relationship with my dad and and then my relationship with my son. My dad's isn't in great health these days, so I think about him a lot. And he said to me once that the hardest part of being a parent is letting your kid make their own mistakes. And so I think a lot about, you know, I'm working on a book about love and self-compassion and kindness and trying to talk about it in ways that will make it a little less a little bit more accessible to people. And I I have a hope that my son will read it someday and it will be useful to him. I also think I can't protect him from having to make his own mistakes too.
1: I know, as the mother of two daughters, I I constantly try to protect them and constantly fail. So thank you for the reminder. (laughs) Another phrase of yours that I love, Dan, is our inner weather. So first of all, how is your inner weather right now? And uh, how do you take the temperature of your inner weather?
0: Generally speaking, my inner weather is pretty damn good, especially given that I am not immune to the sort of mid-pandemic blues that I think a lot of people are feeling that, you know, we've come far, but we may yet have far to go. And being in the news, I see a lot of the, Sort of more difficult aspects of our culture. I'm not immune to that either. But generally speaking, this self compassion on top of the self awareness that I've been working on for years through meditation is a really nice pairing. And you know, I think you tried to get me to answer a little bit of this earlier. That that th- this is not something that I'm just kind of pulling out of a hat. There's a lot of science here that su- strongly suggests that. People who are more self-compassionate are better able to stick to their goals long-term. They have more other compassion towards other people. They're happier. There's all sorts of physiological, psychological, even behavioral impacts of this practice. And I, I like to think of it as a kind of an upward virtuous cycle that when your inner weather is balmy, then your relationships improve. And of course, since relationships are probably the most important contributor to human flourishing, then your inner weather gets even nicer as a consequence of your improved relationships. And then upwards we go. And this isn't always, it's not always going to be like this. I mean, I often pick the opposite spiral, the toilet vortex of, you know, just getting into self laceration and other stuff, but it's possible for me more frequently to go on the upward spiral. And, and that's, uh, that's a life enhancing skill.
1: Yes. And at Thrive, we talk a lot about micro steps, you know, tiny incremental daily habits that can affect whether you're on an upward spiral or down the toilet vortex. Have you picked any micro steps, any small habits that help you course correct? If you experience yourself uh, going down the downward spiral.
0: I mean, this is where what you referenced earlier is so important, that having self-compassion while endeavoring to work on self-compassion is so key. I'll give you one really, really helpful example. So for me, I can get into a whole yakety-yak situation around eating and body image. People get surprised sometimes when they hear me say this first of all, it's not a thing that men talk about that much. Second, I'm slim. But I am on TV, so I kind of have to see myself frequently. I'm I'm nearing 50. And so sometimes I look in the mirror and realize, wow, I I don't look the way I used to. It would take an archaeological dig to find the abs I had in my 30s. (laughs) And so I can get into a whole situation around that. I also can get maybe a little dysregulated around after dinner cookies and then that messes up my sleep and then the whole next day I don't feel good. And so I can get into cycles around that and actually two things. One is can I treat the misstep, maybe it was eating too much cookies or maybe it was spending too much time looking critically in the mirror, can I treat that as a data point? Rather than a failure, Mm. what did I learn? What was going on last night that I had too many cookies, disrupted my sleep, and now I feel crappy? So that's one thing. And the second thing is, as a scientist named Chris Germer, who's one of the leading scientists in the field of self compassion, said to me recently, the fundamental question of self compassion is what do I need right now? And so, can I ask that little question? What do I need right now? Is it endless rounds of self laceration or is it a nap?
1: I love that. That's beautiful. And really, in a sense, it's connected with everything you've taught for so many years around meditation, because you made meditation so much more approachable by breaking it down into these tiny incremental steps, by encouraging people to start wherever they are. So how does self-compassion help these inner skills of meditation
0: well because if you think about the meditation and there are lots of forms of meditation but the beginning form of mindfulness meditation has you sitting or lying down comfortably often you close your eyes then you try to bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out and then every time you get distracted which will happen a million times you start again and again and again That moment of waking up from distraction is often an opportunity for, you know, beating yourself up and feeling humiliated because you're so distractible. And by the way, the things you were thinking while you were distracted are so embarrassing and often venal and uh, homicidal and whatever. And so you can really get into feeling like crap in that moment. If you can have a self-compassionate attitude of like, oh, can I treat this as a data point? Can I... Can I just see how wild my mind is and realize that, oh, yeah, actually the point of meditation isn't to stop thinking, it's, it's to see the inner cacophony clearly so that it doesn't own me anymore. Well, that's really helpful. Can I just give myself a break, stop striving for perfection all the time? Because that attitude, that type A attitude can be really helpful in some areas of our lives, not so much in meditation. And so can I be okay with the inherent sloppiness of the practice?
1: And also, you know, as Thich Han has said, and I know you quote him a lot, it's never been easier to run away from ourselves with social media, with our addiction to our phones. So what boundaries sort of have you set for yourself? And, and what's your relationship with your phone? Do you sleep with it? Do you go to it first thing in the morning? How have you managed that relationship, especially over the last year when we are all constantly obsessing with coronavirus news and the latest story we're following?
0: I would say it's medium healthy. So I did a bunch of work with a fascinating woman named Catherine Price, who wrote a great book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. Yes, love it. And she's incredible. And uh, she really walked me through digital hygiene in a very helpful way. And I've retained about 50% of her suggestions. Uh, The primary one being at around 5.30, I have two six-year-olds in my house, my son and then uh, his cousin who also lives with us. And at around 5.30 at night, we all have dinner together. I try to put my phone to bed at that time. Some nights I'll go back to work, but often I will not go back to it in any meaningful way the rest of the night. And that is great.
1: And do you put it to bed outside your bedroom?
0: I used to live in an apartment, so there was not much outside of the bedroom. In the middle of the pandemic, we moved to Connecticut, so we have a house now. And my wife and I have this bedroom together, and in there, there's like a big closet. So I put it in the closet, so it's not accessible. It's not on my nightstand. I don't use it as my alarm clock or anything like that. So I'm not checking it when I wake up in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning, unless I want to.
1: That's fantastic. I'm going to send you a gift. You know, we've produced this little charging station that looks like a phone bed and it has a little blankie and you put your phone under the blankie and your wife can put it there. It has room for 10 phones and iPads. You say good night, you tuck it in. As you know, we all learn through ritual and you reconnect in the morning.
0: Sure, why not?
1: Okay, perfect. So Dan, uh, many years ago when I was on your podcast, you said that you're obsessed with the question of whether you can be an ambitious person who is nonetheless striving for enlightenment. So, where are you in that question now? Why, do you, have you come up with the answer?
0: Still ambitious, not enlightened. Um,
1: <laughs> but on an upward <laughs> spiral.
0: Uh, so, some days, some moments, yes, uh, sometimes in the toilet. Um, I am working on my meditation practice all the time. Sometimes I think about where I am on the on the sort of traditional measures of progress. Sometimes I don't even know if I believe in those measures of progress. But generally speaking, I know that my life is improving the more I do the practice on a day-to-day basis and the more I take long meditation retreats. And I do think Whether or not enlightenment is possible, as it's understood in the various traditions, constant and meaningful improvement is on offer.
1: I love that. And also, it's connected with what you have said about our obsession with constantly optimizing ourselves and how that also gets in the way of our meditation practice, our spiritual practice, whatever term you want to use. So, let me just end. With a cultural question, you have predicted that at some point our mental exercise, our meditative practices are going to become as important and as much a part of our culture as our physical exercises now. So, where are we on that trajectory?
0: You know, I first made that prediction back when my first book came out, which was almost seven years ago. And I've just seen enormous amount of progress on this. It is no longer embarrassing to say, I meditate. It was really embarrassing when I first started meditating. And now it's like totally socially acceptable. And so do I think everybody's doing it? No. Do I think we're firmly on track to having a, a similar percentage of the population that exercises the body, exercising the brain and the mind? I do. I don't know when that's going to happen, but it seems like the wheels are pretty firmly in motion.
1: And you've been a big part of that, Dan. Thank you so much for being on this podcast and also for all your incredible work to spread the word and in a very gentle way, proselytize people (laughs) uh, to start on this upward spiral. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Always great to see you.
1: And before we wrap up today, I'd like to leave you with a micro step inspired by the conversation that you can take with you. Here is one that can start you on the road to getting more skilled at self-compassion. Pick an affirmation that turns a perceived weakness into a strength. For example, if you frequently feel judged by others or especially by yourself for falling behind or not measuring up somehow, instead say to yourself, I'm able to do everything that needs to be done. This will help you rethink how you feel about that weakness feeling. And if you need to say it out loud, do it, really. As Dan says, embrace the cheese. Thank you so much for being with us today. Join us next time on What I've Learned. People don't believe me when I tell them that when I have a hard time falling asleep, My go-to solution is Sean Didi Combs' sleep meditation. It's called Honor Yourself, and it's part of Thrive's collaboration with Audible to create sleep experiences that will deliver your best sleep during this difficult time. The stories have no beginning, middle, or end, so you won't stay up to hear what happens next. Here, Diddy guides you through a deeply relaxing meditation that will allow you to say goodbye to the day and wake up refreshed and ready to take on the challenges of the next one. It's time to slow down and enter a period of deep, restorative rest. This is Diddy. I'll be guiding you through a meditation that will help you slow down and drift off into the peaceful, restorative sleep that you deserve. We're gonna start by setting a vision for our time together. Before you start anything in this life, you want to have a vision of yourself experiencing that thing. And right here, right now, your vision is of you in a non-judging, effortless, calming state of sleep. If you're not asleep yet and want to hear the sleep track in its entirety, go to audible.com slash thrive to start your free trial tonight.